Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. story recently about one of the designers on this medical equipment department team at General Electric. Years ago, Doug Dietz was the leader of one of the teams that was designing some pretty high-end medical technological equipment. And so at the time, in that season, they were working on a new MRI machine. Now, for those of you who haven't had an MRI scan done before, let me tell you, it's an extraordinary non-invasive technology that allows doctors to see with much more detail than an x-ray the details of what's going on inside a person's body. But the process of undergoing an MRI scan can be uncomfortable. It can be intimidating, especially if you're having to have something scanned kind of on the upper half of your body because typically you'll have to be inserted into this tube head first and it can be narrow and it's noisy and you have to endure these long stretches of these loud mechanical sounds that are happening around you even though nothing's poking you or prodding or anything like that. And so after Doug Dietz's team worked for years to develop this new MRI machine, Doug wanted to see the machine in action. And so when the first one was installed, at a a children's hospital in Pennsylvania, Doug went and paid a visit to see this machine in action. He was so excited. He was, you know, jazzed up about seeing the fruits of his team's labor. But while he was there, what he saw was a family, a, a mom and dad and a young daughter who were walking down the hall toward the MRI examination room with trepidation. And he noticed that the little girl had tears streaming down her face. She was terrified about what she was about to experience, and her parents were trying to give her this pep talk and trying to remind them about how they had talked together about being brave and courageous. And and then she walked into that dimly lit, cold, clinical exam room setting. And as Doug was watching this little girl try to work up the nerve and be brave enough to go have the MRI done, he noticed the technician, the MRI tech, picked up the phone and called to another department, and he realized that that technician was calling for an anesthesiologist to come down to the MRI area. And what he learned was that in that hospital, as many as 80% of the children who get an MRI require sedation to go through that test, not because there's anything painful about it, but because they're too frightened, because they're too scared to lay still to go through that MRI scan. And after seeing that, this designer, Doug, he realized, I've got to go back to the drawing board. He realized he couldn't just go back to GE and begin working on the next piece of technology. He needed to go back and figure out where they went wrong and what they could do to keep this process from being frightening for children. Doug says he, has one, he had one of those wake-up call kind of moments in his life, one of those moments that 
the new information, the new realization, the new reality that he became aware of was so powerful in his mind that it changed the entire trajectory of his life. Perhaps you've had a moment like this in your own life. Maybe as you look back on your own story, you can think about some days, some events, some landmark moments in your life that changed everything. In the same way that historically Christian calendars have distinguished the period before Christ with the letters B.C., and then the time since Jesus' birth as A.D., which is Latin for in the year of our Lord, We've divided history because there was a linchpin moment. There was a watershed moment, a monumental event that happened after which, in our eyes, nothing was ever the same again. It was so pivotal. And if your life has had some defining moments like that, then you know that life after those moments can never be the same, right? I mean, some of you could divide that, those times in your life as before college and after college, or before children and after children, or before I moved to Texas and after I moved to Texas, or before I knew Christ and after I knew Christ. For the past few weeks here at Heritage, we've been working our way through a series of messages called Surprise the World. And it's been all about how to overcome the apathy and the skepticism that many people in our community feel about the Christian faith. The percentage of people in our culture who are religiously unaffiliated continues to rise. More and more people report that they're not connected to any sort of faith tradition. They're not connected to any sort of spirituality that is concrete and tangible. And for a variety of reasons, the cultural perception of Christianity seems to be deteriorating, not improving. To put it more bluntly, non-Christians seem to be developing more and more negative feelings about Christianity and the church. And so in this series, we've been talking about how we could adopt some Christ-like habits on our own habits in our lives that would pleasantly surprise our neighbors, that would exceed their expectations. We've talked about habits like generous acts of kindness and inviting people to our meal tables. We've been dreaming about opportunities that might be sparked, might be created and opened up for us to share the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Because for many of us, one of those landmark moments in our life was when we discovered the hope that Jesus offers. When we discovered grace, when we discovered mercy, when we discovered that there was a future for us beyond our own selfish ambition. And so we've been dreaming about what it would take to open up some opportunities to tell other people who wanted to hear about the hope that we have in Jesus. But we've also been pretty realistic about the fact that it's going to take a lot of acts of kindness and a lot of meals together to counteract the negative reputation that Christianity has developed in many circles. Because in the eyes of many non-Christians, the church has become known for its divisive politics and its inward focus 
instead of its kindness and its positive contributions to society. I think it's time we tell the world something different. I think it's time we tell the world around us a better, clearer, more inviting version of this story. And I think that begins with remembering the unique and personal stories that drew each of us to Christ or many of us to Christ in the first place. And so today, I want to get you thinking about the origin story of your own relationship with Jesus, whatever stage that relationship is in. If you've been in connection with Jesus for decades or if today is the first day you're like experimenting with this, I want you to be thinking about what got you to this point. But I also want to remind you about Jesus's very first disciples and the defining moment that caused them to decide, I'm following him. So today we're going to look together at a short passage of scripture in Mark chapter 1. If you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to join us there. Mark is one of the four books in the Bible that we refer to as the Gospels, and gospel is just a word that means good news. But what, what we mean by that is that Mark and these other three books these are like journalist accounts of the life of Jesus. These are people who reported on what Jesus did, what Jesus was like, what Jesus said, and how Jesus interacted with other people. And Mark is unique. One of the distinguishing characteristics of Mark's writing, it's the shortest of the four Gospels, one of the distinguishing characteristics of his writing is that he's very succinct. He gets right to the point. Mark writes with an intentionality and an immediacy. In fact, time after time, you'll notice in Mark, it'll say Jesus did this, and then immediately he did this. It's like Jesus is in fast forward in Mark, okay? When Mark writes about Jesus, he writes with this intentionality, and he excludes details that are not necessary to the picture that he's trying to paint, the story he's trying to tell about Jesus' life. So Mark doesn't record any of the details about, about Jesus being born, doesn't record any of the details about Jesus's childhood. We have to look to Matthew and Luke to get all of those details. Mark skips over all of that stuff. Instead, in the middle of Mark chapter 1, we get introduced to adult Jesus. He's in his 30s, he's been baptized, and he has begun his preaching ministry in northern Israel. And right after Mark tells us about the message of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching, we learn that Jesus started to call people to be his followers. Beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, here's what it says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, this is a large freshwater uh, lake in northern Israel, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. All right? They're, they're in the process of fishing. He sees them casting the net, like they're busy. Verse 17, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, this is one of those examples of Mark writing with such urgency. At once, they left their nets and they followed him. Somewhere in the Sea of Galilee, there's a net laying on the, on the sea floor that never got hauled back in. 
And I think this is a fascinating scene because Mark doesn't give us any context about whether Jesus and Simon and Andrew had any prior connection or not. It's possible that Simon and his brother Andrew knew Jesus or that they had at least heard of Jesus, that maybe the rumors about Jesus' preaching had begun to spread, but that's all just speculation. We don't know. We do know some details from history that inform what's going on in Simon and Andrew's orbit at this time. We know that the Sea of Galilee belonged to Caesar, meaning it was under government control, and so you had to have government permission to fish there, which was a new development in the last generation or two for them. The Romans had enacted a new system of licenses and taxes, and they were putting a squeeze on the livelihoods of families who had been in the fishing business for generations in that area. And so commercial fishing, which was a hard life already, was getting harder in those days because of the demands of this occupying Roman government. And so we could imagine that Simon and Andrew lived a life with a lot of stresses, a lot of pressures, a lot of anxieties. But we don't know any of the specifics. We don't know any specifics about how it was affecting those two men. We don't know if this was their first time meeting Jesus or hearing of him or not. We don't know if maybe he was just a stranger walking up and talking to them from the shoreline. But what Mark does tell us is that Simon and Andrew immediately said yes. They immediately said yes when Jesus invited them to follow. In fact, Mark leads us to believe that they stopped right in the middle of the fishing that they were doing, left their equipment where it was, dropped everything, left the nets, left the rigging, left everything that represented their livelihood and their careers. In fact, if you've seen the TV series that I've recommended a few times in sermons previously about Jesus' life called The Chosen, it's still actively being produced. If you've seen any part of this series in season one, it speculates about how this decision to follow Jesus probably caused some tension between Peter and his wife. I'm sorry, Simon and his wife. Because this is challenging. We don't get these details in Scripture, but we know this was a choice that had real consequences for other people. And it makes me wonder why Simon and Andrew said yes. It makes me wonder why Simon and Andrew agreed to go. It makes me wonder what kind of invitation would cause you to walk away from your career in the middle of a work day. I mean, imagine just laying down your tools, walking away from a classroom full of students, pushing your chair back from the desk, getting up and walking out. Some of you are thinking, this sounds amazing. Can we do it tomorrow? You know, like, I got you. But realistically, we're talking about something much more drastic. We're not talking about Simon and Andrew taking an early lunch or taking a mental health day. Something inspired these two men to abandon their tackle, to throw caution to the wind so that they could follow Jesus into the unknown, so that they could follow Jesus without knowing where that was going to take them. And if Mark's account is telling us the whole story of that episode, and we don't have any reason to doubt this, then the only thing Jesus said to them was, I have a plan for you. Follow me because I want to do something with your life. Follow me because I want to give you an assignment. Follow me because I want to give you something to live into. 
When Jesus said, I'm going to send you out to fish for people, he's obviously using metaphor, and he's using it in the right place with the right kind of people, right? He's using metaphor, but he's telling Simon and Andrew, your lives can be more compelling than this. Your lives can have more purpose. Your lives can have a greater impact if you'll follow me. And when they heard the invite, Mark says they jumped at the chance, left everything where it was. And it turns out that they weren't the only ones. The very next verse, verse 19 says, when Jesus had gone a little bit farther down the shoreline, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. So they're, they're either like coming in from the night and getting everything ready so that later on that next night they can fish again, or they're getting ready to go out to fish, but they're sitting there in the boat getting all the equipment ready. And Mark says, without delay, there it is, there's the immediacy again. Without delay, Jesus called James and John, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed Jesus. Now, this sounds like just a mirror image, a repeat of the same story we've just heard. And true to form, Mark doesn't include a whole lot of extra detail for us. But the detail he does include tells us that James and John were not just dabbling in the fishing life, right? This was a multi-generational family business. And it was a larger operation than their family alone could manage. And so they had employees that worked for them. And when Jesus came calling, James and John's decision to follow meant they were abandoning more than their job. They were abandoning more than their equipment. They were walking away from their father and from their family tradition. This is not a decision to be made lightly. And we can only assume, we can only assume that they they had to think about it. But it makes me curious about what made them say yes. It makes me curious about what made them decide, yeah, fishing's not for me anymore. Of course, we're not going to know any more details from this story. All, All the details and factors have already been laid out. But what we do know, what we do know is that when Jesus invited them to follow, they heard it as an invitation to something more compelling. And the vision of the story Jesus was creating for them. The vision that Jesus was casting gave them the courage to walk away from what they knew so that they could go see where Jesus was going. Which brings me back to the story of Doug Dietz. Doug visited this children's hospital and saw the fear in that little girl's eyes on the way to the MRI machine. And then he heard about how the majority of the patients, the children in that, that children's hospital were having to be sedated to go through this non-invasive scan. And he knew he had to act. And while the technology and the equipment really couldn't be changed all that much, an MRI is what it is, Doug figured out that it's possible to change the narrative of how a child experiences the, the equipment. It's possible to change the narrative of how a child interacts with this technology. And so he figured out how to change the story, how to tell a story so that the MRI scan isn't a scary thing that patients have to do. It's an exciting thing that patients get to do. 
Doug and his team applied custom decals and decorations to the outside of the MRI machine, and they redecorated the entire exam room from floor to ceiling, and they created, uh, they created a sound ambiance, and they had scents that were included, and they created a script so that the MRI technicians could take their patients on an adventure. One of the machines was transformed into a pirate ship, complete with a big wooden captain's wheel surrounding the round opening of the machine. And the, the optics of that captain's wheel made that, that opening, that hole, look a lot larger and less claustrophobic than it really is. And the operator invites the young pirate into the exam room and explains that they're going to be sailing together inside this pirate ship and that after their voyage, after they travel through this portal, that they're going, porthole, they're going to be able to recover some treasure from a treasure chest that's on the other side of the room. There's another exam room where the MRI machine was transformed into a spaceship that transports the patient on an otherworldly adventure and just before all of the whirring and banging of the machine starts to get louder, the operator encourages the patient, listen closely so that you can hear when the spaceship shifts into hyperdrive. And if you've ever been inside an MRI machine, you know how loud those knocking sounds are. But this simple reframing transforms those previously terrifying sounds into just another part of the adventure. And they created MRI machines that looked like princess castles and looked like all sorts of different environments and camp sleeping bags and, and tents and all sorts of, there's nine or ten different versions of this that Doug and his team created and they experimented with it in different, different settings, different hospitals. And they were so excited because after they put all of these new themes into place, the number of pediatric patients that needed to be sedated to get an MRI dropped to almost nothing. But the best result came when Doug was interviewing the mother of one of these little girls after her experience in the pirate ship. And he was trying to debrief and ask about how it went, thinking about how he might be able to improve. But he noticed that while they were talking, the little girl who had just gone through this test came over and tugged on her mom's sleeve and said, Mom, can we come back tomorrow? There's something about telling a better story, a more compelling, exciting story that caused frightened kids to give MRI a chance. There was something about telling a more exciting story that caused skeptical children to be brave and to go into that room. And the same test was performed, but their approach to it, their engagement with it, their interaction with it, their fear of it totally shifted because the story that they heard was better the story that they heard was compelling the story that they heard captured their imagination you know i'm convinced there's lots of people in our communities who are cynical about christianity and part of the reason they feel that way is because the faith story that they've seen it's not very compelling to them. That what they've seen Christianity do to their Christian friends and neighbors has not seemed like something that they want any part of. 
I think there's a lot of people in our communities who, who want to be connected to something bigger than themselves. But when they look at the lives of the Christian people around them, un- unfortunately, too often they feel like, I don't think that's it. They're not hearing the stories of Christians who are on an adventure. They aren't seeing examples of people who are suddenly more peaceful. They're not seeing examples of Christians who live with less worry and anxiety than they did before. They're not seeing examples of Christians who are more patient than their non-Christian neighbors. They're not seeing examples of people who are less angry and less afraid than everybody else. I'm not saying those kind of Christians don't exist. In fact, I know they do. But I'm afraid too many of our non-Christian neighbors don't see it. And if we're going to give non-believers a reason to consider Jesus' invitation, we're going to need to tell a better story with our lives. If we're going to give non-Christian people a reason to lean in and say, I wonder if connection to Christ could be the connection to something larger than myself that I've been missing, we're going to have to tell a better story, a more compelling story with the lives that we're living. We're going to have to live out the kinds of spiritual fruit that's only possible in somebody when Jesus has really gotten a hold of them, right? I mean, Paul talks about this list. We, we sing sometimes about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And honestly, those are all things that each and every one of us have a certain amount of ability with our own willpower to try to live out, right? Like I can, I can be patient to a point. I can be self-controlled to a point, but then there's that point, and then I'm done. And everybody knows that. I mean, everybody who failed on their New Year's resolution diet last month, right, knows about what it's like to run out of willpower, to get to the point where you just say, I've done all I can. Everybody knows what it's like to run out of patience. Everybody knows, every human knows what this is like. To feel like you're at the end of your rope, you've gotten to your wit's end, You don't have any more kindness left to give. You don't have any more gentleness left to share. No more joy. You've run out. We all know, every human knows what that feels like. But what only the humans who have let Jesus get in control of their life know is what it's like to have patience after that. what it takes to have joy after you've reached that point. What it takes to be self-controlled when you've run out of the willpower on your own. And what it takes, what it takes is allowing the Spirit to lead the way. It makes a difference how you show up in a place, right? It makes a difference how you show up. I remember in high school, 
<clears throat> you go into the you know, middle school and high school, you go into the cafeteria, that can be kind of an intimidating place for many. Years later, I was a student minister, and I'd walk into the cafeteria at a high school during their lunch period, and I'd be carrying bags of McDonald's cheeseburgers. And I came into that place with so much confidence, you know, like, what are they gonna, what are they gonna do to me? I'm giving them free food, you know, like, I had all the confidence in the world. Makes a difference how you show up into a place. Makes a difference when you show up into the MRI machine room, the MRI exam room, and you're a pirate or an astronaut or a princess versus a frightened patient. And it makes a difference. If we show up in the, the, different, the different places, the different networks, the different assignments in our life and we show up in those places and we say I'm here to let the spirit lead my life I am here to be a disciple of Jesus I am here to demonstrate more love than I know how to demonstrate on my own I am here to be more joyful than I feel like being I'm here to be more gentle than anybody else is going to expect I'm here to let Jesus lead my life. I'm here to be a disciple. And the world needs Christians who see the discipled life as something that they get to do and not something that they have to do. The world needs Christians who are not trying to ask the question, how much do I have to give of myself in order to be a disciple? Instead, the world needs people who are asking the question, how can I give to God what God deserves from me? How can I give back to God what God deserves from me? The world needs Christians who aren't looking at this discipled life and all of the, all of the vision that God has for us and the assignments and the tasks and the sacrifices and the worship and all of that. God, the world does not need more people who are saying, okay, I'm going to try to reach that bare minimum. The world needs Christians who are saying, I get to be in this journey? He invited me? I mean, I was just doing my own thing. I was just going about my business. I was casting a net into the lake. And he walked up to me and said, follow me and I'm going to turn your life into something. Follow me and I'm going to do something bigger with your life than you know how to do on your own. The world needs Christians who are excited about being on this adventure with Jesus. The world needs Christians who are excited about being people who show mercy. Like how, how counterintuitive is that? to want to show mercy to somebody else. You know, like besides your own kids, maybe your own spouse, how counterintuitive is it to be somebody who was looking for chances to show mercy? That's what the world needs from us. To be the kind of followers of Jesus who were like, man, he taught me how to show mercy. How can I show somebody else? The world needs Christians who are excited to enact justice to be the kind of people 
who are not just trying to keep score and keep tabs and make sure that nobody else gets an unfair advantage. The world needs Christian people who say, Jesus stood up for the people who couldn't stand up for themselves. How can I do the same thing? The world needs Christian people who are excited to be generous with their resources. In fact, Paul's pretty clear that the kind of giver that God desires is not somebody who gives because they have to. Not somebody who gives because they're supposed to. In fact, I I would go as far as to say, I believe this is true, that if you're giving because you feel like you have to, God would probably say, don't waste your time. But what God is looking for, what, what, what the world needs, is Christians who are saying, can I have more? Can I do more? What else can I do to be a part of how God is changing the world? The world needs Christians who are excited to find more and more opportunities to serve more and more opportunities to give of their time and their energy and their talents to try to be a blessing to somebody else. The world needs Christians who are thinking, I don't know, I'm not serving because I have to. I'm not serving just because somebody else told me they need me in a certain spot. I'm serving because I get to. Because Jesus taught me how to do this. Because the one who, who deserved every bit of honor and glory and knew that every power in heaven and earth had been given to him took off his outer cloak and wrapped a towel around his waist and washed people's feet. I'm serving because it's what my leader told me, taught me, showed me to do. The world needs to hear a better story. The world needs to hear a better story about what Christianity is about, what faith looks like, what difference it makes, what kind of hope we actually have. The world needs to hear a better story. And if our Christianity seems cumbersome to us, if it seems like a drudgery to us, then perhaps it's because we have to lean further into the story ourselves. Why did Jesus call his first disciples? Why did he call Simon and Andrew and James and John? wasn't because he needed help. Jesus could have done every bit of this whole mission by himself, right? He didn't need their help. But they needed something to steer their life toward. They needed something to follow. They needed a vision for the story of their life that was bigger than what they were living at the moment. Jesus called his first disciples so that they could tra- he could transform their lives into something so that he could help send them, so that he could send them, send them to fish for people, metaphorically, to make a difference in the lives of people, to tell people about what they themselves had discovered. And they immediately jumped up. They immediately left their nets. They immediately left their father. They immediately left the boat. They immediately left the hired men. They left immediately and they followed Jesus with excitement. And then pretty quick they found out it wasn't always easy. It was challenging. It was frustrating. There were moments when they were scared. There were moments when they didn't know how it was going to turn out. And then ultimately when when he was arrested and tried and crucified, they said, well, we guess it's over. 
And then three days later, they saw him again. And when he rose from the dead, and when they figured out who he really was, then you couldn't stop him. Then you couldn't stop him from following. Then they gave up everything. Gave up all of their own plans, all their own ambitions. They became, they became ministers and, and, and missionaries and pastors who traveled all over the globe. And they faced persecution and most of them ended up being executed. Except they had the chance. Somebody would say to them, if you'll just denounce Jesus, we'll let you live. And these people said, no way. You can have my life, but you can't have my faith. Once they knew who Jesus really was, you couldn't stop them from serving and giving and being merciful and pursuing justice and loving and being gentle and being self-controlled. You couldn't stop them because it had really gotten to them in here. That's what I'm praying for us. That's what the world needs. That's what would really be surprising is if we were the kind of people who wouldn't let anything stop us from following where Jesus is taking us.